How do you respond when you enter a big V time? If you've been well and cultured into spiritual language and someone who asks, someone asks you what the big V word is, we immediately want to say, well, it's, it's victory. That's what Jesus came to give us. That's the state in which a truly spiritual person lives. More than conquerors. Yeah. But I'll never get there. I'll never live there with any consistency. I'll only be faking it. Unless I become more aware, more quickly and more fully, of the first big V. Vulnerability. We're not talking about being vulnerable in the sense of being transparent and open to others about what we think is going on in here. That's another subject. We're talking about vulnerability in the sense of being susceptible to a wrong turn, to negative influences, to deception, recognizing places and times I'm most at risk, most at risk of being sucked into or falling prey to decisions that will ultimately take me out. When my own heart deceives me, into reactive responses that, although they're understandable, they just put us further into the hole. We're becoming more aware, or at least talking more, about at-risk populations, vulnerable people. But am I aware of my own vulnerabilities? And I, am I aware of them soon enough, or is or is the V word the excuse I use after the fact to explain my less than stellar response? My immediate knee-jerk reaction to a situation that threatened either my safety or my success, the way I want to experience life, or at least portray to others that I'm experiencing it. Well, I know it wasn't the best response, but, but you have to understand I was, I was vulnerable. I was threatened like a cat in a corner. We're looking in God's word at the life of David, one of the most significant human leaders in God's story, God's version of the story that he's writing for us, with us, in us, with him, and for him. In the Old Testament, the big three human leaders God used in making that story happen were Abraham, Moses, and at the top was David. But none of these men were perfect men. Not even David, the man after God's own heart. By any measure, David is not a perfect man. And here's where we can easily, easily stumble as we go through his story. One way we stumble is to say, well, see, David wasn't perfect, but God still accepted him. God still used him. We use failures like, like we will see in David's story to flee too readily and not get past that, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I'm just human excuse. Am I right? Okay, maybe you don't have that struggle. I do. Another way we stumble is to say, well, how could God allow that? How could God condone that? We have to remember that a lot of what we have in the Bible is not prescriptive. It doesn't prescribe how we are to act. It doesn't condone what God's people and God's leaders did. It is descriptive. It describes what people did and how God, in his grace, in his mercy, comes through for us through his perfect son, Jesus, so that we don't have to fail 
like they did. There's a lot about David that we're not called to be like. As a matter of fact, we are called, commanded, not to be like. And we're shown why we don't really want to just accept or excuse ourselves for being like David. We're going to see that today. There's a lot about David's life that, that he himself would say, you, you don't have to. You don't need to learn from your own experience when you can learn from my experience. Trust me, you do not want to go through the path of learning that lesson. As a matter of fact, that's what we're told we are to learn from even these heroes. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul reminds these people who are proud of their heritage as those who came through the line of God's people. He reminds them that God was not pleased with a lot of the way his people responded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he says, These things happened to them, and they're recorded as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages, Jesus, has come. To keep us, he says, from setting our hearts on the wrong things, like they did, verse 6. So then, he says, if you think you're standing, that you have it all together, under control, in a good space, be careful that you don't fall. Don't forget the big V. Where are we in our journey with David? David has gone from zero to hero. From being the least and the lowest in his family with the leftover responsibility to being anointed as king and then thrust into the national spotlight as this accidental hero slaying Goliath because he had this simple, powerful, if God is for us, who can be against us kind of trust. But there's still a king on the throne, a narcissistic, mentally unstable man who's not about to let go and who knows David's been anointed and who sees David as a threat. But David just keeps on serving faithfully, trustingly, and God sends into David's life a, well, as we saw last week, a better friend. The king's own son, Jonathan, who becomes David's advocate with his father, his confidant, his intel, to be able to stay one step ahead of his father, his protection. With Jonathan at his side, David can see a way through. We saw last week how Jonathan is the better friend to David that we should all aim to be for others. And in a bit of a wrap-up to their relationship in chapter 20, verse 17 of Samuel, it says, He loved David as he loved himself. With that kind of a friend, there's nothing that David can't endure. But there comes a time when both Jonathan and David realize it won't work any longer. Wicked Saul has figured it out. And he'll just simply follow Jonathan to get to David. And so at the end of chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we have this heart-ripping separation. It says, David got up from the south side of the stone, bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. 
Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have a sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. And David enters the big V, big time, vulnerable. For the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, 10 chapters, for the next somewhere between 10 and 15 years of his life, David is on the run, a fugitive from Saul. Oh, David does not fully recognize at first how vulnerable he is. What David knows is he's desperate. He, he fully appreciates the bigness of his loss and desperately starts making plans, but he doesn't realize that desperate is a key sign of vulnerability. It's a warning sign of being at risk of doing something that will only make things worse. Ever been there? We all know the time-worn advice when a, when a, a beloved wife or husband dies and the advice is don't make any major decisions or moves in the first year. Why? Because we're at risk. Vulnerable. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, or 21, I'm sorry. 1 Samuel chapter 21, or your Bibles, your Bible app, or if you're on our church online format, on the left-hand side, there's a, a Bible uh, section. You can just turn right in there to 1 Samuel chapter 21. What does David do when Jonathan leaves and David is alone? David goes to church. Chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech, Ahimelech, the priest. David goes to church. That's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't that a good place to begin? Depends. As we read this account, I'd like you to think through it in light of those four stages we saw several weeks ago when we talked about starting again from the heart. The process we often go through when life hits us from the side or head on with a negative situation. Remember those four R's? React. It's what we first do. We're desperate to protect and preserve what we can. Blame others. Damage control. Make up for it, etc. And then we reflect. At some point in time, we're forced to accept the situation, and, and sometimes we make long-term excuses. Sometimes we, we process it more positively and come to a point where we can actually release, including re repenting of what we did wrong and just accepting what is and letting it go. And then we can really, truly start rebuilding. As we read this account, would you ask yourself, is David there yet? Or is David still in that reacting phase? Is David going to church for the right reasons, with the right expectations? Is there anything that might hint that David is going to church for some reasons that might trip him up, that could actually be harmful? He's going to church in a way that might not be helpful. Ask yourself as we go along. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, Nob was a little town not far from what would eventually become Jerusalem. It was the, it was the place where at this point their, their portable worship center, the tabernacle, 
the place where the, 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 the ritual sacrifices were held, where the symbols of worship were, although the Ark of the Covenant is not yet there at this time. And, and so Nob was the place where the priests lived. Isn't that where David should be going? But in the next line, we read something that makes us say, uh-oh, something may not quite be right. David went to Anab, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? At least the priest has this, this will not turn out well sense. Well, yeah, but he's just a pastor. What does a pastor know? Ahimelech trembled when he met him. Ahimelech, the priest, is afraid, and he has reason to be afraid. Ahimelech probably knows that this isn't the first time David has come to God. Last time, chapter 19, it was to a prophet, Samuel. And Saul had a way of finding that David was there, and the fact that Samuel was the prophet of God meant nothing to Saul. He went after David. Ahimelech probably feared that the day would come when David would show up. Because David goes to God. That's what he does. And as David comes in, Ahimelech asks the question that will reveal whether this visit is the worst case scenario that's in his mind or whether it's something better. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? So how's that question designed to surface whether this is the worst case scenario? Because if David's alone, it can only mean one thing. David is on the run. Again, a fugitive from Saul, just like when he went to Samuel. But as a priest, this puts Ahimelech in an even more awkward place than it puts Samuel, the prophet. As we know, Israel has a king because they wanted to be like other nations, right? They have not allowed God to direct the process and choose his king. They haven't figured out where a king fits into their leadership structure, their constitution. And so the king basically writes his own rules. And in the nations around them, the priest, the religious system was basically there to prop up the king. The priest answered, to the king, not to God or whatever God they thought of. It happens. It's what Martin Luther, Martin Luther and others saw happening in the Holy Roman Empire. The, the prince and the bishop were in cahoots with each other, supporting each other, feeding each other, making each other wealthy. And Ahimelech knows Saul's heart. He knows that's how Saul views the world. You see where this is going? Ahimelech knows that David is now God's anointed, but Saul is still king and is doing everything possible to hang on to the kingdom, and Saul definitely has some expectations of Ahimelech if he meets David. David has just put him in a very difficult place. Who does Ahimelech answer to? Saul, the reigning king? David, the upcoming king, he knows he answers to God, not to either of them. But he knows Saul doesn't see it that way. But how does David see it? 
But Ahimelech does his best to go with God. Clue number one, Ahimelech smells trouble. And then, in David's answer to Ahimelech's question, we get clue number two, that there's trouble. David makes up a story. He tells a lie. He knows what Ahimelech is really asking. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not running from the king. I'm actually here on a secret mission for the king. David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king sent me on a mission, and he said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. Really, David? David's desperate, and in his desperation, David is not fully coming to terms with his vulnerability. David, remember what you said to Saul when Saul wanted to give you his armor to face Goliath? The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David, do you need to resort to lying and scheming and manipulating? But David doesn't take time to think or to give Ahimelech a chance to think through what David has just said to ask a clarifying question without even taking a breath. David takes it to where he really wants to go. He, he does what we do when we come to church. What we do that makes coming to church a much, much less helpful and satisfying experience than it should be. You see, David has decided. David has determined what it is he needs in church. David is the consummate consumer. He has decided what he needs from God. David knows Ahimelech's mind, so he frames his request, his demand actually, as something that actually comes from Saul. Clever, David. Clever. He continues his lie. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now Ahimelech is in a real bind. David has put Ahimelech between God and Saul. David knows there's food there. And he knows that it's not food that he is allowed to have. But the king sent the command. Verse 4. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread, some holy bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Every week, a fresh loaf of bread is put on the altar, bread to represent the presence of God. It's what Jesus picked up on and declared to be used for our ceremony of communion. That bread was, was consecrated. It was set apart, holy. It could not be eaten by anybody until the week was over. Once a fresh loaf is put out, last week's stale bread could be eaten, but only by the priests. As if anyone else would want stale bread, give it to the priests, right? No, that wasn't it. Only the priests, because it was still considered to be set apart, holy. Ahimelech makes an on-the-spot decision. Okay, if your men have kept themselves sexually pure, if your men are pure before God, I'll let them have it. It might be easy to think that Ahimelech is compromising, that he's caving, he's rationalizing. But did you know that Jesus affirmed this decision 
that Jesus uses it to show Ahimelech's wisdom and discernment. He understands the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Ahimelech is not just caving to David or to Saul. Ahimelech is still being accountable to God. Listen to David's response. David just keeps the lie going. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I sent out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed from them before the Lord and replaced hot bread on the day it was taken away. And David says, Basically, when he says, how much more, <laughs> since this is such a holy Malik, holy mission, David is really implying to Ahimelech, this is such a holy mission we're on. The king will not judge you. He will bless you. Ahimelech, you're going to get a raise, a promotion. Just watch. And so Ahimelech gives it to him. It's all good, right? Little lie for a legitimate purpose. No problem. Why does David come to church? He comes for provision for daily bread. Isn't that what God promised to give? No problem, is there? But the narrator of the story gives us a little hint that it's not all good. Not all as good as David thinks it might be. Verse 7, now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite. Saul's chief shepherd, or as some people think, Saul's chief of staff. Doeg, a servant of Saul, an Edomite. Who were the Edomites? The Edomites are the descendant of Jacob's twin, Esau. Jacob the lesser, Esau the older. God chose Jacob, and Esau's descendants are the people who are constantly trying to oppose what God is doing with God's people. Somehow this Edomite has become Saul's chief of staff. There is no way this will end well. As we'll see later, David knows it can't end well, but instead of backing down in his desperation, he just doubles down on what he thinks he needs from God. It's more than provisions he needs from God. David needs a way to protect himself from Saul. His lies work so well, he keeps, he, he keeps going to the same well. Verse 8, David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapons because the king's mission was urgent. David, where's the God will deliver him into my hands? Trust that you preached at Saul. I wonder, no, I actually think Ahimelech might be thinking the same thing. He can't really say no to David, but in what he tells David, I'm thinking Ahimelech is trying to help David see it himself. Verse 9, the priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. What is Ahimelech wanting David to see? At least, what is the author wanting us to be asking? David, you refused to take Saul's weapons to kill Goliath. 
Why? Why would you stoop to thinking you need Goliath's weapon to protect yourself from Saul? Where is your God will deliver him into my hand? Trust, David. David, do you have any idea the message you are sending to the people you want to lead? This sword is where it is in the tabernacle of God to show God is greater than his enemies, to show that you don't need the sword to defeat your enemies. David, David, David. By now it's clear, isn't it? David's desperation is leading him to justify things that he would never have done and keeping him from realizing how vulnerable he is. So why is it we go to church? What is it we think we need from God at church? My observations is that there are several common things we expect when we go to church. Some of us go to church to get a pump-me-up experience, an experience that will make me feel a certain way. We even know the feeling we want, right? Sometimes we go to church to, to be around build-me-up people, people that will make me feel good. And our biggest criticism of church that proves that's the point we criticize the people that are there because they didn't give us any attention. Some of us come to church for a, a prop-me-up, practical solution to a problem we have. We, we want something to solve an immediate problem. Some of us come to church for, for take-me-deep or propel-me-on teaching, a verse for the day that might help me make it through the week. Is there anything wrong with any of these? Not necessarily. Should we not get these in church? Maybe. But when those are the big reasons we go to church. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of the experience of uh, a frustrated staff in the emergency room of a certain hospital who had a consistent stream of desperate drug addicts coming in. And without permission, let me say, and it was removed very quickly, but there was a period of time when a sign was put on the reception desk. If you know what drug you need, we will not prescribe it for you. They were at the place they might have found help, but not the help they thought they needed. I think of that often when we come to church. David gets what he thinks he needs, but did he get what he really needed? Did he get what God wanted to give him? By what he does when he leaves church, you got to think David is still desperate, scheming, and manipulating. He, has still not, he is still not living at that God will deliver him into my hands trust that he once had. Where does David go? Chapter 21, verse 10. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Where is Gath? Gath is in Philistine land. You know what David's thinking? I think David's thinking something like this. Who is Saul most afraid of? Where will Saul never pursue me? The Philistines! Where in Philistine land would Saul certainly not go? Well, he'd never go to Goliath's hometown. Gath is Goliath's hometown. But David has a problem. 
When he went to church, the priest smells something fishy. When he comes to Gath, the king's servants smell a rat. Verse 11. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. Okay, now David has a problem, and he does the only thing he can think of to do. David took these words to heart, was very much afraid of Achish, so he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he attacked like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madman that you had to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Oh, David. At one point, the Philistines were so afraid of you because your God, because of your God will deliver them into my hand. Trust. And now you just look like an idiot to them. David is groveling at the feet of the king whose champion he's already defeated to try to get protection from the king God has already anointed him to take over from. Oh, David. And then David hits the bottom. Chapter 22, verse 1. David left Gath and escaped to the cave at Adullam. Now that's the bottom. A cave. When the palace is your destiny, a cave is the bottom. But what happens in that cave? David discovers in the cave what he should have discovered in church, and it wasn't the church's fault. It was in the cave that David meets God. David went to church not to meet God. He went to church having decided in his desperation what it was he needed from God. But he, what he really needed was God. And it's in a posture of trust. He needed to let God decide what it was he really needed. It is in this case that David recognizes his true vulnerability and he's moved in meeting God from a position of reacting in desperation to reflecting in a very healthy way and even to begin releasing. It is this cave that God prepares David for more than a decade of running from Saul, not in desperation, but in trust. This cave is David's sanctuary. We know that's what this cave meant to David and what it meant for David for two reasons. It was in this cave. It was from this cave, or in some sense uh, situations, in some cases, calling to remembrance the power of the experience in this cave that David wrote a number of the Psalms. And there's a word David uses to describe that cave that is used 37 times in the book of Psalms, to talk about who God is and what God wants to be for me. It's the word refuge. 
David discovers God at the bottom, not at church, because he was not ready in church to meet God. It's from this cave that David writes, Psalm 57, Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you, not in this cave, in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. It's when David remembers what he learned in this cave that he wrote what, the, what, what, what is often read in a worship experience. Psalm 31, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. That's what David should have been saying in church. And it was most likely from David that other worship leaders picked up on this image and write Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength and always present help in trouble. Do you know, that, do you know another psalm that comes out of this cave? It's out of the reflecting on his time in this cave as David is entering another rough water period that David writes Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. Down to verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What David is really saying is, God, I don't want to ever again, in a state of vulnerability, in a state of panic and out of desperation, I do not want to demand from you. I know that's where I went wrong. I will set you before me. And then I won't be shaken. This statement, I have set the Lord always before me because he has at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It's not an I'm really spiritual, I've got it all together statement. It's as much a prayer, a commitment to not do what he did back then. It's in this case that David meets God and comes back to an if God is for us, who can be against us posture. We know what this cave means for David because in the Psalms he shares from his heart how the cave shaped his view of God forever. But we also know it from the story itself. We don't know how long it's been since he got into that cave. It's been a while. And Saul, who can't get David, Goes for his family. Verse 22, or uh, chapter 22, um, verse 2. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him in that cave or at that cave, and he became their commander, about 400 men. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn? what God will do for me. What are the first words in the narrative 
that David says after coming out of the cave? The first words that we know that he said after being in church? Would you let them stay with you until I learn from God what he will do for me? David's no longer deciding what he needs from God, demanding from church what he needs from God. David has truly come to God and is saying, you know, in my vulnerability, desperation, I panicked. I'm now back to a place of letting God tell me what I need. And until then, I'm going back to the cave. What happens to David when he allows God to meet him in the cave? Does God remove Saul, open the door for David? No. But when David comes to that, until I see what the Lord will do for me, posture, he sees all kinds of things God starts doing for him. Let's just survey very quickly the rest of the chapter. You can just follow along as I talk about it. In the first four verses, God brings his family around him. He's no longer the runt of the litter. His family comes to, to, to need David's protection from Saul because Saul goes after them too. David's family is with him. But David is also, also growing. David is beginning to be more concerned for others than himself. David, now that he's stopped telling God what he needs and has opened himself to what God provides, has this flash of insight. We, we're near Moab. Why don't we go to Moab? You guys can stay there. Who's in Moab? Well, who is from Moab? David's great-grandmother was from Moab. Her name was Ruth. And David takes his family there, and sure enough, he finds some open arms for his family. Can you see how God is providing for David in more ways than David was even demanding? Verse 2, David begins to see relationships God is providing for him. All those who were distressed in debt and discontent came to him. Now that's a great team to start with, sometimes called David's 3D gang, distress. They're in trouble, most likely with Saul. Saul's leadership has put them in the same situation as David. They're in debt. Well, what that means, they had creditors on their tail who are going to take advantage of them. And they're discontented. The word actually means bitter of soul. Life has hurt them deeply. Not a great start, but David is building his team what they are is loyal to him. And many of these original men become, over the course of time, it's going to take a long time, they will become core leaders in David's kingdom. Verse 5, God gives David direction. He brings another prophet into his life who says, David, it's time to move on. Let's leave the cave. Let's go to the forest. There's more hiding places in the forest for, for a while. And David begins to learn who he should listen to for wisdom. Verses 6 to 8, as we go on, more and more people begin to see Saul's self-centered leadership and trying to buy their loyalty. God exposes Saul. David doesn't have to. As we go past verse 9, David gets something else. David learns that his failures really impact others big time. Doag comes back in the story. Doeg reports to Saul David's encounter with Ahimelech, and Ahimelech and his entire family are killed. And David does what Saul never does. David owns it fully and publicly. Look down at verse 20 of chapter 23. But entire family of Ahimelech, but one son named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord 
Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay here with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. David owns his failure big time. Saul never does. You know, one of the things I'm hearing these days is, I am so ready for when we can get back to church. I'm ready for church to open. Let's open up. Are you really ready? I wonder if God might be saying, do you really want to go to church to meet me? Because I can meet you in your cave. And until you let me meet you in the cave, maybe you're not as ready to go to church as you think you are. I know one thing that God is saying. It's amazing what you get in the cave or in church when all you really want is me. There's an old song that's been recycled that we love to sing. Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. The original song was written from, well, most likely from a cave-like experience. It was written by a stay-at-home mom doing her daily and demanding duties with a brood of kids with no one to connect for with meaningful adult conversation who came to the point of realizing that the only thing that could make her life meaningful and would make her the person she wanted to be was, was not to set goals and achieve them, not finding someone to, to talk to on an adult level, not finding some way, to, some way to show people who she really was. She simply needed God. If you know the tune, close your eyes, sing them from your heart. As I say the words, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour, most holy one. Oh, make me thine indeed, thou blessed son. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Bless me with what? With things? With something new and different and better? No. Just make me know your presence. I need you. You know, there was this old saying that I sometimes heard as a kid from pastors. It was, never forget in the darkness what God taught you in the light. Well, okay, that's true. But it's really in the darkness, in the cave, that God does most of his teaching. Perhaps it's more important that we should never forget in the light what God taught us in the darkness. Are you allowing God to meet you and teach you in the cave? To meet you and teach you about himself? Do you know 
where you are the most vulnerable. Many times it's as much in the bright times as in the dark times that we're vulnerable. We move from our all I need is you posture. Are you demanding from God in your desperation when he's saying to you, I'm here, all you need is me. Many years after David, God sent the greater David, Jesus, who took on himself the consequences of all our failures, who was buried in a cave so that he could fulfill the great promise he makes to us. Come to me. To me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest from your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You'll never live in the V you're looking for, victory, until you really know your true vulnerability and look for God alone. Jesus will meet you there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that even in our failures, in spite of our failures, you want to meet us. We thank you that you have given a way for us to meet you in the Jesus who absorbs on himself the consequences of our failure so that we can be free before you. Father, help us today to give ourselves again to the one thing commitment all we need is you. Lord, meet us in that cave. In Jesus' name, amen.